Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I am your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am going to be interviewing Vanessa Hua. Vanessa is the author of A River of Stars. She is also a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle, among other things. But before I get to my conversation with Vanessa, I wanted to do just a little housekeeping. All right, here it is, your weekly reminder. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. There is a link there that will take you to all the books discussed today, as well as the social media accounts for The Stacks and our guests. Plus, if you shop through the links on Amazon, you're helping to keep the stacks free. If you're looking for an amazing book recommendation, send us an email to askingthestacks at gmail.com. Myself and my guest will read it on air, discuss it, and then give you a personalized book recommendation or five. So email askingthestacks at gmail.com with your name, what you're looking for, and maybe a few titles you've loved or hated. If you like the stacks and want to support the work we're doing, here are a few easy ways you can help. First of all, join us over on Patreon. That's a website where you support the work we're doing and earn perks for yourself. We've got a virtual book club, we got inside access to the show, and we have an amazing community of other readers who love the podcast. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to join in. The last thing you can do to help the show is definitely the easiest. Subscribe to the stacks wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and tell your friends and family about the show. It goes a really long way to helping us reach new audiences. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Vanessa Hua. I'm sitting here today with best-selling author and columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, Vanessa Hua. Vanessa's most recent book is A River of Stars. Vanessa, welcome to the Stacks. Thanks for having me on. We're so excited. Okay, we're going to get started kind of just with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you grew up, how you kind of got into the writing world. So I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm, me too. Yes. Um, I'm the daughter of Chinese immigrants. And so I think from very early on, I realized the world inside my home was very different from the world outside of it. Mm. And so I sought answers um, through observation, but also through books. And it was um, in books that I began to see the broader world and began to see possibilities like, um, you know, some of my childhood favorites were Anne of Green Gables, mm. Joe March from Little Women, 
uh, Laura Ingalls from the Little House series, and they all were feisty girls who wanted to be writers. Right. And so just the very fact that this was something that you could want to be right. um, made it possible for me to to dream of that too. And I think I, I started um, writing stories very early on. I have this distinct memory in the second grade where we all had to write uh, a piece of fiction and the teacher read everyone's stories out loud and the class voted by raising their hand on the best one and mine won. Yay. But before I could savor this recognition, um, I leaned, I heard my classmate lean over and tell her friend, I only voted for hers because it was the longest. <laughs> so yes. There's that girl now. Yes, exactly. But it was my uh, first public recognition and first uh, snarky review, let's there say. You go. <laughs> So both things are allegedly important. Yes, yes. And so I continued writing fiction growing up. And then in college, though, I began um, to be interested in journalism and worked on the school paper, was a columnist there. And um, I mean, I think both my fiction and my journalism come from the same place about just wondering at, about other people's lives and following my curiosity mm. out into the world and just knowing that I could just have license to be like, hmm, why is that? And then being able to just you know, call someone up or approach someone and ask them to tell me their story. It, it felt like, you know, great fun and also an honor and a privilege. And so um, I was focused on journalism for a couple of years after graduation. Um, and then I looked back at some of this fiction I'd written in college and thinking, you know, this is pretty good. This is not bad. But <laughs> but like just almost having that feeling of bafflement, like, do I remember how to do that? Right. And, and and thinking so much of my identity growing up as a kid had been like, oh, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to be a novelist, but just feeling a bit distanced from that. Mm. Um, so then I, you know, started joining writing groups that I found online or like I think I even ripped like off a flyer in a cafe, <laughs> um, you know, going taking writing classes, writing on the weekends, at lunch, in the, you know, in the evenings. Uh, using the printer at work to print out my stories to send out to literary magazines for submission. Oh my gosh. Um, but, and, and so I was, uh, you know, traveling abroad as a journalist, you know, to China, Burma, Panama. And, um, and on one of these trips to South Korea, there was another journalist and over dinner I said, Oh, I've always wanted to write a book. And she looked at me and said, then write a book. <laughs> she was just making small talk, right. but it, really resonated with me that if I wanted to write a book, I needed to find a way to truly center it in my life. And hmm. for writers, there's lots of ways of doing this. One writer told me she never went out and she got out of shape because she stopped exercising <laughs> to right. finish her book. For me, I decided to get my master's of fine arts and MFA um, at UC Riverside because I wanted the time and guidance and space um, in, in to, to work with faculty on a book length project. So um, that's the route I took. And, you know, but it, it uh, you know, the the path is never straight and true, like an arrow flying right. across the sky. Of course, because everyone has their own way in and their own reasons for writing and their own other things going on. And I feel like one of the things that I've learned from sitting here and talking to so many different authors and writers is that there isn't really a right answer. I kind of was hoping maybe there would be and I would have this podcast and crack the code, <laughs> be able to tell everyone who ever wanted to write a book, this is how you do it. But you kind of just have to want to do it and then figure out what's best for you. Exactly. and um, Which is crappy. Yeah. Well, if you want an answer. Right, right. <laughs> and there's so many writing 
everyone always asks, like, what's your process or like, what's the code? Um, and another author friend and I, before our books ever came out, uh, this was years ago, and we thought, oh, you know what? We don't need a life coach. We need a psychic. <laughs> <laughs> someone, yeah, someone to tell us that all our rejections and wrong turns and scrapped pages would amount to something one day. Yeah, yeah. but uh, unfortunately, I don't know of any psychics. I don't know if right. you do. No, <laughs> no, I live in LA and yeah. I don't. I That's should. like Psychic Central crystals. I feel like I could find you in quick though. If right. you needed one in LA, I feel like I could. Right, get someone. Right. Let me ask you: Did you follow up with the woman who said we'll write your book? Did you send her your first book? Like, are you still friends with oh, her? Oh, you know, you connect I, I connected with her actually to thank her. You did. Because, um, and, you know, I think she didn't even remember the conversation. Right. Because it was just small talk to her. But right. it profoundly, you know, it just, I needed to hear those words at that time. Mm -hmm. There's always those people in our lives. Uh, my aunt has this great story. My aunt is a lesbian and she, I guess, at a high school reunion was there and was talking to some other woman and was talking about her life and her partner and this and that. And then the woman, you know, they went on their separate ways. And at the next reunion or the reunion 20 years later, the woman said to her, you know, you helped me like get out of my marriage and discuss. <laughs> and my aunt was like, what? And we were talking about this because I'd had a similar thing with a friend from college had said something when the whole Me Too movement started. I lived in New York City in college and I think we were freshmen together and someone was catcalling us, I guess, on the street. And I flipped the guy off or said, we don't have to put up with that or something. And so when the whole Me Too movement came out, she wrote on my Facebook wall, I'll never forget the day you told me I didn't have to. And I I was like, I don't even remember this. Like, But there always are those moments in our lives where someone says something to us that's super profound and changes our path. Or we do that for someone else and it's like, doesn't even register. I love those little bits. Of, of connection, yeah. Yeah, because... I mean, obviously it was a huge moment for you when this woman said, we'll write your book. And for her, it was like, oh, I'm also going to have the Caesar salad. Exactly. You know, like, <laughs> sure. She's like, I heard someone, she's like, this woman keeps talking to me about this book. Like, just write it. Yeah. Um, Enough already. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> I think that's so great. I do want to talk to you a little bit about being a columnist and a journalist versus being a novelist. And I'm sure you get this a lot. And I think a lot of people write, you know, small pieces columns or whatever it is, op-eds. How does that differ for you? And do you find joy in either place more than the other? Or do you do, does one excite you like writing a novel or your short stories versus... As you know, I'm the mother of twin boys. Yes. So when people ask me, um, you know, what's your favorite form? It's sort of like someone asking me like, well, who's your favorite son? Right. Right. <laughs> um, but for me, I, I love... Um, I love them both and I love the different ways, you know, they both nourish my creative practice. Mm -hmm. um, being a journalist um, and writing a column gets me out in the world and, you know, interviewing people and the piece will go up within, you know, days or weeks. Um, whereas a marathon uh, experience is, is a novel. Right. And, and I think um, writing fiction has helped uh, my journalism because I'm much more likely to think about character or narrative movement or, or dialogue. You know, my earliest pieces of journalism almost read like courtroom stenography, just like mm. quote, 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 whereas there's just a way to, to really shape um, the, the piece. And I think journalism has really helped me with my, my fiction. It's trained me 
to you know write daily, to know that the first draft is not the last draft, right. and to be open to editing and collaboration, and that nothing is so precious that it it can't be reworked, um, and just uh, again having license to go follow my curiosity wherever that may take me, and uh, you know it's. If if you're a friend or even an acquaintance of any expertise, I will hit you up for <laughs> questions about immigration policy or right. what does a gunshot wound smell like or right. any any of those things. So, um, I, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, you? totally. I mean, I just I also think they come with different pressures, right? Like being a columnist or a journalist and being a creative writer. I don't know. What do you? What do you? A novelist. Yeah, you write short stories too. I don't know what the right word is there. Yeah, I mean, I think um, definitely. I mean, I think particularly a columnist is its own special thing because I know I'm coming to them over their kitchen table. It's a weekly relationship. Um, I write about social justice issues, but also you know often through a personal lens, and so I'll do book events and people will come up and say like, I read your column too mm. and I love it. And they say, I love your boys. And I'm like, but you don't even know them, but maybe they do in a sense. Right. Like, And so, you know, columns or news features can come out more quickly. They can capture the zeitgeist of that moment so right. that they are a way for people to feel like I'm feeling out of sorts or scared or anxious about climate change or about the political situation. And it's just like a way for people to sort of convene in the moment, you know, more, but whereas a book, um, I think I have really cherished those times when I've been on book tour, when someone talked to me at a reading or sent me a message, you know, online just about how they felt alone and mm. the book or they felt invisible and the book reached them at just the right moment. Yeah. yeah. That's really special. Do you, when you're on book tour, when you're writing your column, do you still write one every week or do you kind of like backload them? Sometimes if I have time, I will sort of, uh, sort of, uh, try to write them in advance. Okay. Um, and other times I'll be writing on the airplane mm. or I'll be dictating in my phone in between between like while I'm writing public transportation and that weird woman who's right. like whispering into her memo <laughs> um, app. So. I love that. Do you feel like either one is more collaborative? Because when I first started talking to authors, I kind of thought that writing a book was something that you did really on your own. And now I understand that there's a lot of people who have their hands in your book from your agent to your editor to the people in the art department who make your cover. Like there's a lot of people who actually are a part of the creation of a book. And in my mind, uh, a newsroom is very collaborative. Like there's also your editor you have, they, they put it on the page. And do you find that there's some similarity in that or that they feel really different? in the working with others. You know, you're right. It's It, it was interesting to realize um, how collaborative. So writing the book that gets sold and then sent, that that part is solitary. But right. once it's about, uh, you know, once you've been through your edits with your editor and then she might have her assistant read it and right. then, ha then have someone else in the house read it to sort of gain support for the book, there's that. Uh, there's the art department. And then there's the marketing and sales team. Right. And just I've gotten to know my local sales rep um, and it's been wonderful because, you know, and just I even was thinking about the the guy who's handing off my load of books off the, the 
the loading from the truck. Right. <laughs> it's like so, and then to the booksellers who are help um, spreading the word about the book or hosting your event, um, or the librarians. There's so many people who right. do sort of are so instrumental and who I'm so grateful for for you know helping get my book out in the world. Um, and then with a piece of journalism, um, there's definitely people who are weighing in. Um, I think in some ways there was more of that, uh, like especially at, like at a magazine maybe mm. like 15 years ago where there would be like all these printouts and red pen right, and right, like right. rounds of edits. I, I mean, I don't necessarily miss daily news, but mm. when there's when it's election night or there's a big you know disaster, I think there's something so special about a team of reporters coming together yeah. to go. I mean, here in the Bay Area, we just had the power outage. Right. Um, and it was just so inspiring to see my colleagues just really providing vital information to to people and just covering it as it unfolded. Yeah. I kind of have a weird thing for journalists. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I just love them. I'm like really into them. I know it's not a glamorous job, but in my mind it really is. I don't maybe because I've seen and read all the president's men and like that's like such a classic like ugh, Robert Redford just being like hot and journalisty and I don't know but I just lo- I love the idea of like an old school newsroom like when they have the meetings for the front page and like all that stuff um, okay let's talk about your book A River of Stars it's a novel why don't you tell us about it? I always feel the author does a much better job than me. <laughs> sure. So uh, when people ask me about my book, yes. I tell them it's a pregnant Chinese Thelma and Louise. Bingo. <laughs> it's about two very pregnant Chinese women on the lam from a maternity tourism center in Southern California, and they make their way to San Francisco's Chinatown, where they find a haven and a home. So when I picked up your book and I read the back or whatever, the first two sentences of it, I was like, oh, is this historical fiction? I had no idea that these maternity centers, what did, what did you call it? Oh, maternity tourism centers. Yeah. I had no idea that those existed. Yeah. They're, I first heard about them uh, when I was pregnant with the twins. Okay. So this was, what, they're eight. So this was going on nine years now. But they've very recently hit the headlines um, wow. just even in the last year again. But um, I, I had first heard about it when I was, uh, as I mentioned, pregnant. And um, the neighbors, not my neighbors, but people, it, this was in the news coverage, in the suburbs east of downtown LA, the neighbors were baffled. They were wondering why all these pregnant Chinese women <laughs> were just showing up week after week, Right? Um, why the trash cans were piled high with diapers, why the whole street smelled like stir fry, <laughs> sounded right. like some bizarro brothel. <laughs> right. And keep going. Yes. <laughs> I was going to ask a question, yes. but I don't even know what yes. it is. And it, and it, I mean, as it turned out, they were coming a month or two before giving birth and then staying here through the birth so that their children would get U.S. citizenship. Mm. But given that I was pregnant at the time myself, um, I knew it's one of the most vulnerable times for a woman. Right. And I just wondered what it was like to be so far from friends and family. And what was it about U.S. citizenship that was so important to them? And there was one detail in a news story that really struck me. A neighbor said, um, you know, one of these women showed up on his doorstep and said, I'm hungry. So we took her to McDonald's. And then afterwards, rather than say, let me call my family, you know, take me to the airport, get me out of here. She just went right back to what must have felt like a prison of her own making. Mm -hmm. And it was in her ambivalence that I really was so curious, like, what was it like 
to live with a dozen pregnant women. <laughs> right. What was it like? Um, you know, or maybe it was a complicated relationship with her baby daddy. You know, maybe, maybe what, 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 what things had sort of conspired when they lived apart or what was her relationship with her own mother, mm. which is something you think a lot about, um, when you're pregnant and, um, you know, raising kids too. So, um, and, you know, a lot of these, you know, and these women weren't talking. So I, I believe that fiction can really flourish where the official record ends. Right. So while I, you know, got inspiration from the news stories or from reading some court documents or even going to the websites and mm-hmm. having a peek at like VIP accommodations or standard, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of it, I just, you know, use like took an empathetic leap of imagination. Right. Um, and what was interesting was, and I don't know if um, p- some of your past guests have talked about that feeling of imagining something and then later confirming it. Mm, like, no. be- because afterwards I read, did read some first person accounts that came out again after I turned in the book and they talked about the sort of uh, catfighting dynamics that emerged. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's in my book. Yeah. That's in my book. So. Yeah. Did you ever get to go into any? I didn't. I didn't. didn't. Um, was that a choice or was that because there, there wasn't access or both? I mean, I was just hugely pregnant. Just, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So but you could have gone and been like, I'm looking for a place. Right. Right. <laughs> Except my Chinese would be like oh, terrible and I right, would be instantly caught out. Of They'd be like, aren't you, you're already American. <laughs> right. What do you need us for? Right. Um, that's so, I love the idea of that you took the story and really just ran with it. And I think that that's very very cool because I think sometimes people, authors get bogged down in the research part and they get stuck like that's not exactly the truth. So I love hearing that you kind of went with it and then found out like, oh, I got that right. Like my <laughs> exactly. imagination nailed it. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, so one of the other parts of this story, aside from the motherhood aspect, which is huge, is the kind of immigrant narrative or this outsider voice, Scarlett, who's our, our lead. I love Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> She's my problematic fave. Um, she, there's these points throughout the book where she'll have like a little observation about America. And I just found that to be really, I, th- I found those moments to be really poignant because it made me think as an American, someone who's been here my whole life, my family's been here for a long time. I was like, oh, I've never, I've never thought about, like she had some thoughts about McDonald's. <laughs> She had some gun violence. She had some thoughts about gun violence. She had some thoughts about lesbians. Like she had some thoughts where I was like, huh. And I wonder, I wonder how you, you're from America. You were born here. How you wrote with that perspective, if that was something that you got from your family, from your parents, or if that was just something that it's also been strange to you where you're like, this is a weird thing. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, Scarlett's don't, views don't necessarily reflect. Right. No, no, no. Not her yeah. views, but kind of just like, I think sometimes for myself, I have a hard time seeing the world from a different perspective. And it's very clear that you were able to kind of shift your perspective to see the world, to see America in a fresh way. So I wonder how you were able to do that with her. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I I always do find it sort of interesting to be able to try and imagine how this, to shift the perspective. Yeah. Um, And for example, I think, you know, Americans will think X, Y, Z about a country, but then they don't realize that the same sort of like, I think a lot of people think America is really dangerous and that everyone's toting a gun. And yeah. So, so, um, and you know, there's that uh, series that Slate puts out 
and that's sort of humorous. It's like if another country wrote about America mm. as if America was, you know, writing about them. So they'll, you know, they'll talk about a the restive province of Missouri. Right. <laughs> with like a history of. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's just, I think um, sometimes we need to turn the lens back on ourselves. Right. And not, I think, always sort of hold ourselves as like the way that something is supposed to be or just just understanding where we fit in in terms of structural racism or sexism or you know all those things right. like how that we're not somehow outside of that right america loves to think that we are though yeah so american um before we kind of shift a little bit i do want to talk about the motherhood aspect in this book so we have daisy and scarlet who are moms they're they're pregnant when the book starts they have babies I'm not going to spoil anything. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> they're different. They're re- these these women are different than a lot of the ways that I've seen motherhood and pregnancy portrayed in books. And I wonder what maybe you were seeing in your own reading and in your own world that made you write these women in the in the ways that they're written. Well, I think. Um, I mean, I, I the, it, it began it began on the basis of the story began on circumstance and okay. like trying to figure out how did this woman wind up in this situation and, you know, how would she kind of make her way out of it? And I think I have, if there's anything that is a thread through my short stories and my fiction, um, even though it's very different contexts, I have uh, sort of an interest in resourceful, wily underdog women. Right. Yes. But, but in terms of Scarlet and Daisy, you know, Scarlet, as a peasant who grew up in the countryside and became a factory worker. Daisy was actually American born, but then grew up in Taiwan going to one of these American schools. And um, I mean, I think often there's just only one narrative for a particular group. Like there are immigrants who came in this way and do X, Y, Z, and they don't take into account how different, you know, the multitudes that are within a community or even within an individual over a lifetime, like Right. That, that how many different ways that that people change, um, and so Scarlet and Daisy are are thrown together. They're also different difference in age. Daisy's a teenager. Scarlet's pretty much twice her age. Um, but I always thought that if you can get through early childhood together with someone, it's almost like living through a natural disaster or war. <laughs> so I, so you're bonded for life. I love that. Um, <laughs> we're gonna talk more about your book next week when we talk about number one Chinese restaurant, because there's some ties and some things that kind of fit together. So I'm going to pause discussing A River of Stars for us because I have some things for next week that I'm excited about. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished, and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have 
considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. And we're going to kind of shift into your reading life and a little bit more into you. But before we do that, we have a little segment on the show called Asking the Stacks where our listener has written in and they're asking us for a book recommendation. So I'm going to read it and then I'm going to give mine so you have time to think. But this is a good one. This comes from Claire. She says, I love the podcast. Thank you for all your book recommendations. I just finished reading Julia Shears, Julia Shears's Jesus Land and I loved it. Any other great memoirs I should check out? And I should say that you know Julia yeah. from the Writer's Grotto. Um, and I love that book so much. So here are my three picks for you. Um, the first one is not actually a memoir, but I don't like to follow rules. And it's What is the What by Dave Eggers, also Bay Area guy. Um, he is He writes the story of a refugee from the Sudan, and it's with the refugee. So together they write this book, but Dave Eggers is the author and this is like kind of his story is told through Dave Eggers. So it's kind of like memoir, but not exactly. And it's fantastic. And it takes you through the Sudan and leaving and getting to America and what it's like. So that one's great. Um, I have another kind of Bay Area one for you. It's This is really off the beaten path for most probably of our listeners, but I just listened to it on audiobook and it's one of the best audiobooks I've ever listened to. It's The Sixth Man and it's Andre Iguodala's book. He plays for the Golden State Warriors and he was kind of a journeyman basketball player and has played for, I don't know, almost 15 years. And his memoir is fantastic. So if you have any interest in sports at all, especially basketball. If you know who Andre Iguodala is, it's an amazing, amazing book. So it's kind of a weird turn for me. And then the last one I haven't read, but I've heard is phenomenal. And it's on the New York Times list that they did 
not too long ago about best memoirs or like the last 50 years. And it's called Wave by Sonali Darayingala. And it's about the tsunami in, 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 I think it was Indonesia. Or Sri Lanka. Or- yeah, Sri Lanka. Yeah. Exactly. And it's her story of her family, her parents and her husband and her kids and the wave and what happened and the way that they described the book on the New York Times podcast talking about the memoirs was so good and it just sounds amazing. And just like Julia Shearer's book, it sounds pretty devastating. So those would be my three recommendations. You can do one or two or none, <laughs> Vanessa, up to you. Well, those um, those books sound wonderful and Julia is wonderful and so is her book. Yeah. Um, so I have a few recommendations. <laughs> yes. Um, one is... Um, a book by Korean-American adoptee Nicole Chung. Oh, we did that on the show. Oh, so good. She's wonderful. Yeah. Yes. All that you can ever know. Yeah. Um, I also uh, just read Heartberries by mm. Therese Mayot. Yeah. And it's just so intense. It's written in the form of, of letters and it's just, um, it just really, uh, really touched me. Um, and I also, um, Lacey M. Johnson. <gasps> oh, Yes, she wrote the other side. It's a devastating, devastating account. She is like, have you read The Reckoning? Yes. Oh my God, I love her so much. Yes, and she just wrote a piece for The New Yorker about a funeral for a glacier. A glacier. It came out like this morning. Yes. We're on the same page. Yes. I love her. Yes. Those are so good. Yes. Oh my God. She's wonderful. (laughs) Um, And then just one last one. Yeah. Um, uh, Stealing Buddha's Dinner by uh, Beth Bitwin. And it's just an account of... Growing up uh, in the Midwest and music and food and a relationship with her grandmother and it's just uh, really, really beautiful. I I don't know that, but I'm going to pick it up because your other three were so good. Um, So Claire, those are your options. We hope you'll read them and let us know what you think. Message us. If you all want your book recommendations read on the air, please email askingthestacks at gmail.com. Okay. Vanessa, we always start in the same place. Two books you love and one book you hate. Okay, so I don't know if this is cheating, okay. but I'm going to say for one of the books, the Elena Ferrante Neapolitan novel. Okay, so the series. Yes. Okay, In fact, um, my uh, I we had a group of women that we had a karaoke book club. What where, does that mean? <laughs> so we're all women writers of all Asian women writers actually, and we read through the series, and so we would read each book and then get together for dinner to talk about it and also gossip and, you know, have fun. And then we would go sing. So sort of like the book club part of it was the what intellectual part of it. And then the singing part was sort of in the same way the books were all about sort of the, the emotions, um, the, you know, the it, it, it got at sort of like, you know, both aspects of the book. Is Ara Kwan part of this? Yes. Okay, because I've seen her go karaoke on her Instagram, and she like I've seen. I think I've seen maybe you in some of these posts. <laughs> right. Okay. Anyways, amazing. Okay, what else? Um and, um, well, another book I just read and and loved was uh, Trust Exercise by Susan mm. Choi. Um, I just I or I felt like it was a total mind blowing experience. It was a sort of book where I thought. I need to talk to someone about this immediately. Like, what just happened? I haven't read it yet, but I've heard great things. Yeah. So as of this recording, it's a finalist for the National Book Award. But by the time you guys are listening, we'll know what happened. Um, Okay, what about a book you hate? You know, I was thinking about this. And can I give more than one? (laughs) Yes, please do. I love when people aren't shy about hating something. So uh, I will say this. Years and years ago, back when the corrections came out, it was like, 
everyone's book club like book. <sighs> and I actually did um, enjoy it. Uh, because my father had Parkinson's, so mm. I, it resonated with me. But um, when I read Freedom, I hated it so terrible. Much. Yes, I hated I hated it so much. I began to doubt whether I actually like the corrections. <laughs> so I've never read the corrections, but I remember when Freedom came out, Oprah made a huge deal about like this book is coming, like Oprah. And I had just started dating my now husband, and we lived in New York City. I lived in the financial district, and he lived all the way in the Bronx. So if you know anything about New York subways, that's a good hour plus subway it's ride. It's a long distance relationship. It's a long, it, it is. It's, we might as well have lived in different states. And I was reading that book when we first met. I think it was the first book that he ever knew me to read. And the entire time I was like, this is garbage. I hate this. But Oprah said it was going to be great. So I'm waiting for something to happen. And I still hate that book. And every time I see the cover, I'm just, I get mad, like big mad. Like, ugh, what a waste of my time. Because it's a big book. Yes. It's not 250. It's right. like 600 pages. <laughs> on and on about strange patronizing portrayals of women. <laughs> yeah, just ugh, ugh. Uh, <laughs> Okay, let's flip the script. What's the right. last great book you read? Uh, Ocean Wong's On Earth Were Briefly mm, Gorgeous. Yeah. I haven't read that yet, so you loved that. Yes, and it's also another book written another in book. the form of a letter. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so it just, um, the way he dealt with language and, and memory and sort of the distance between generations and as, as a coming of age story, I just felt it um, just so unusual and, and so beautiful. And what are you reading right now? Well, I'm, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm trying to kind of wrap up some research related to my next book. Okay. So um, funnily enough, I, you know, I love public libraries. Uh, I don't know if you have ever used like interlibrary loan. No, I haven't. But the LA public library system I guess, is that what that is? When well, it's like, you're like, I want this obscure book. My own library system doesn't have it, but they have partnerships. Oh, yeah. With, no, I've never used that. Yeah, but I feel like LA Public Library is so big yeah. that you don't necessarily, I don't know that. if they need it. Yeah. Maybe they do. But um, so anyway, <laughs> in, in case you were wondering, there is a, I got a book uh, just the other day entitled Menstruation. <laughs> I'm very excited for your next book. So, uh, <laughs> well, no, it's, it's like one of those things where it's like, it has it's a detail that has to do with like menstru menstrual rags in like mm. the 1960s in China. <laughs> and I'm like, how am I going to figure this out? But I thought, well, if me, I'll look in this book and we'll see. So okay, oh my god, I'm excited. Can you tell us anything about your next book? Oh, definitely. Yeah, tell us a little something. So, um, did you know that Chairman Mao was a fan of ballroom dancing? No, and of teenage girls. <laughs> Less surprising. Yes. So um, I first uh, was inspired when I saw some documentary footage of Chairman Mao surrounded by these girls who dr were dressed like bobby soxers, like plaid skirts, okay. collars. Um, and I looked into it and saw that he, he would have these ballroom dance parties and special troops of teenage girls who, who would dance with him. And um, there was a memoir by Mao's doctor who – said, you know, he, there was like half a page about them in the book. And he was like, for these women, it was the highest honor of their lives. And for him, that was the end of story. But to me, I thought it's, it has to be a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> so that's kind of where our jumping off point. Yes. Oh my God, I love it. I can't wait. What are some books that are on your shelf or that are maybe coming out that you're looking forward to reading? 
Yes, uh, I am so excited for How Much of These Hills is Gold by Pam Zhang. Okay. That's coming out next March. Ooh. It's um, about a brother and sister during the Gold Rush era when their father dies. They have to figure out how to transport his body through the landscape. And so I think there's sort of like speculative element elements mm. in it, too. Um, I also am really excited about Your House Will Pay by Steph Shaw. And uh, it's a book about the L.A. riots. Um, oh, yes, yes. It just came out. Yes. I have it. Out. It's at my house waiting for me when I get to it. Yeah. More than uh, one person, more than one book lover in my life has has raved about it. Me too. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and I also um, am excited about um, Jacqueline Woodson's Red at the Bone. <laughs> well, okay. So people listening now, right now, will know that last week or maybe Two weeks ago, we did Red at the Bone on the podcast. Oh, wow. But they don't know it now <laughs> right. uh, while we're recording. But yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I started She's reading great. it and I loved it. She's so good. Yeah. And I saw her speak actually in New York um, just this past um, September and she was just so inspiring. Yeah. I got to see her at BookCon. She was in conversation with Damon Young and it was so great. She's great. Yes. I'd never read her when I saw her. And since then, I've now read two of her books. And now I'm like, oh... I, I love YA, I guess. Yes, yes. <laughs> but Red at the Bone isn't technically YA. Uh, right. I mean, I think it's, 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 it has a teenage, yeah, uh, I, teenager. Uh, I always POV. have this problem where I'm like, I don't know what is YA and what isn't. And I don't know that it matters I necessarily. Think, yeah. I think in some ways um, it's a marketing term. Yeah. Yeah. What's a book that you love to recommend to people? Uh, Lydia Kiesling's uh, Golden State. Oh. Yeah. So it's about um we we did some book events together actually and you know I joke that um my book is a, you know the pregnant Chinese Selma and Louise and hers is also like a pregnant or not a pregnant woman but um a mom with her toddler on the run as mm. well sort of escaping or amidst the throes of a nervous breakdown. It's like part 2 of River of Stars. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so she winds up in um a northeast corner of uh, California. Have you heard of, um, you know, there's a succession movement and, um, you know, she kind of writes about that. But I think she writes just so beautifully about motherhood and how there's like the tedium of the, the repetition in, mm. in terms of taking care of a small child, but also that feeling at every moment of it's just slipping away, that it's um, that this is the time, you know, this child that you cherish is just going to grow up and, and leave you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I'm sure by the time they're 18, you're like, bye, see you later. Right. Um, what about a really good book that someone else recommended to you? Uh, well, so going back to the subject of motherhood, um, Angela Garbs uh, wrote this really wonderful sort of reported memoir called Like a Mother mm. because I, she's a pink book. Um, no, no. I think it's sort of like a sketchy, okay. like a sketch on the cover. Okay, okay. Um, but uh, she, um, sh she is, uh, she's Filipina and, you know, she, she's sort of, I think a lot of motherhood books are often told from the perspective of suburban or uh, white or, yeah. uh, you know, city perspective. Um, and so, I mean, there's a place for those books, but then it's sort of like, why, 
why why is that the only depiction of of motherhood? And right. I think she kind of expands the lens, especially when we think about who does so much mothering in America. There's so many women of color who take on the role of mothering for so many as as caregivers. Yes, um, I mean, and obviously, like in the history of America and slavery, that mammy figure, right? The yeah. pe- the person who was raising children for white families was often a black woman. And then later on, it became brown women and other women of color. And so I think it's really interesting that so many books that are published and talked about about motherhood come from that white suburban mothering background when that's not really true to to a lot of mothering that's happened historically in this country and continues to this day. Yeah, there was an interesting photo exhibit a few years ago where it just turn the lens back on. It's sort of like all the brown hands holding the baby that are always like cropped out of the photo, like right. but turning it back on and centering them again. Right. Um, and in fact, in my acknowledgments, I thank um, our, our nanny at the time um, who is an immigrant from Guatemala and just, um, it was interesting. Someone tweeted at me, another mother who's South Asian. She's like, she'd never seen anyone acknowledge mm. or thank um, the, you know, I, I think behind every work, working woman is another working right. woman often right. and often, often brown. And just th- there has to be an acknowledgement of it's like turtles all the way down because then right. she had someone helping she her helping with her, her kids. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's so true. And I never really have, I never really thought about that in connection with the memoirs that so often are published about motherhood that there is a memoir that came out this year and I can't remember the author's name, but I will link to her in the show notes, I promise. And her memoir is called Motherhood So White. And it's about her black being a mother mm-hmm. and that whole, her whole relationship to being a mother in, in relation to the things that we see and read about being a mother that, that's so white. Right. Like the, how do these things connect to my experience as a black mother? So I'm going to read that book. I'm yeah. Really I was on a, a panel with um, Danny McLean. Uh, she was on the podcast. Oh, she's wonderful. Oh, yeah. her book, We Live for the We, is so good. Yeah. What were you going to say about her? Well, size? just the fact that I also, the, the way that she focuses, she talked about how reproductive justice is not just about whether you can get an abortion, but about right. like, is there equity in, in care and the way in, ter- in terms of maternal outcomes and hospitals. And mm-hmm. I think that sort of like bigger look at what what's happening with, with, with mothers of, of different backgrounds is, yeah. is so important. One of the things she and I spoke about, so my husband is an OB, OBGYN. One of the things we spoke about is at the time we recorded, he had a patient who wanted to terminate for a health reason, but not a common health reason. And he had to send it to his supervisor. And he had he's worked at a few hospitals in the LA area. And he said, I think my supervisor will approve it. But he was saying that depending on what hospital you're in, depending on who your supervisor is, their background, their understanding, that this request wouldn't be approved. And I thought, that's exactly that reproductive justice, that it somehow matters where your hospital's located or who, what po- patient population they Are serve. Are they used to? Yeah. Does the chief of, does the chief believe that this reason is valid? Right. Right. And like that all of that is somehow subjective when it comes to this woman's own body and her, her health issues. You know, so it was really something interesting to think about and talk about with Danny because she spent so much time thinking and talking about these things. But she's brilliant. Yes. Her book is so good. 
Um, okay, back to your reading. <laughs> Do you set reading goals for yourself? I feel like I'm always reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it's before bed with a, a book that's on paper or like whether I'm writing BART or whether I'm listening to an audiobook while right. I'm going for a run or or something, um, it's 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 always there. It's so always there. yeah, I, I don't. If anything, it would be like, well, maybe I should read fewer books, but I can't yeah. stop myself. So, <laughs> And then speaking of reading, obviously you love novels. Are there other genres that you're into or genres that you avoid or just don't turn you on? Um, I mean, I love – I mean, I remember in high school just like loving sci-fi mm. and, and though I don't really read it as much anymore, but I think I enjoy it if it kind of crosses my radar or um, – you know, I hadn't really – been reading romances, but then I read, um, you know, a, a couple by Jasmine Guillory, mm. which were just so wonderful and fun and sort of uplifting. And then I also read um, The Kiss Quotient. Yeah. So that was um, by uh, Helen, Helen Huang. Helen Huang, yeah. Yes. And I really enjoyed that too. And I think, um, I mean, I think to the extent that there, there's romance and there's a happy ending, but still sort of talking about these larger issues about race or disability or neurodiversity, I think um, is really interesting. Yeah. There's been a, there's a bookstore in LA called The Ripped Bodice Mm -hmm. and it's a, two sisters own it and it's all romance and books by women, mostly romance, but then they have some like new releases and it's books by like just any novel or nonfiction by women, but it's such a cool space and they have so many romance authors that come in and do their book talks there. And I didn't really know anything about romance and I still know very little, but that just having that space, I thought is pretty cool. It's like so niche, but very cool. Well, niche, but like a really huge niche. Yeah. Yeah. But like imagine if someone's like, I'm going to have a whole bookstore on just this one genre, especially in this time where everyone's like, nobody reads, books are dying. And these two women were like, actually, we're going to do a whole bookstore on one genre, basically. I mean, I think in some ways, writers of literary fiction, there's something to be said to kind of like, well, what are the conventions of the other genres that Mm. make it so... uh, The fans are are rabid, like, you know, whether it's you know thrillers or mysteries or... or, So just what is it that... um, I think the relationship that these authors can cultivate with their readers too is 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 sort of um, interesting to observe and, and and figure out like you know what is it that that makes it successful. So. Yeah, because I think sometimes if you can find a place for yourself or your work, it's easier to find an audience. Whereas literary fiction can become such a vast phrase. There's so many books that fit into literary fiction these days that having like romance you know where to go if you're a reader for that. And you know where to position yourself better if you're an author for that. So I sometimes think it can be helpful to have something more specific, you know, as opposed to something terrible like women's fiction, my nightmare. Um, The most offensive. Actually, at this bookstore, they have a whole empty bookshelf and it just says men's fiction, (laughs) which I think is hilarious. Um, Speaking of bookstores, do you have any favorite bookstores? Well, just like the question of, you know, what's your favorite form or what's your favorite uh, son? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are so many in the Bay Area. We're just so blessed. So many. Um, you know, both my book launches have been at Booksmith in San okay. Francisco, but I've done events at City Lights, which is so storied and, and beautiful. And you just like every corner you find something and, you know, Mrs. Dalloway's, Books Inc., um, Book 
book passage, they all have a different flavor. Um, and you know, they really do reflect neighborhoods and I just love being able to drop in, um, you know, as being out on book tour or just being able to go in and introduce myself to booksellers and thank them for the work that they do in the community. Cause they're really, it really has become a, a place where people, it fosters community. You want a bookstore in your community. It's so easy for people to sort of disconnect and just be staring down at the screen. But um, I remember at one book event I did, um, a woman came up to me. I didn't know her. And she said, you know, my husband just died, but the bookstore owner encouraged me to come to this luncheon. And it just, I don't know. She, you know, it just, that a way that it could, I don't know if it was my book itself, but just like the sense that like having a place to go to be surrounded by people who you know are book lovers yeah. um, is just so special. Yeah, that is really beautiful. And they're so important. What's the last book you purchased? J. Ryan Stradall's The Logger Queen of Minnesota, mm. which is um, a lot of fun. I've been reading it. In fact, my um, my my husband uh, read it first because he's interested in beer as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, w- meaning in the book, it's about one sister who becomes like a pie maker and one's a sort of master beer maker and they're estranged and how they come together. And I think Jay Ryan, who is a wonderful sort of like very active literary uh, community kind of guy, um, he, he wrote this book. And actually it was interesting. He wrote an essay about how he used to be in reality TV mm-hmm. and helped that, how that helped him in terms <laughs> of pacing and character. And, and um, but anyway, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a really, I don't nuanced, even though he's a man, he's able to write about these women from the Midwest with like a great deal of um, compassion and you, you just want to know what happens uh, to these women. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier Anne of Green Gables, Little Women. Are there any books that have inspired you to be in the profession that you're in and maybe more on the journalist columnist side since those ones kind of sound more like maybe the novelist side? Right. Well, I mean, I think to be – I love a good newspaper movie. <laughs> so, okay. Like you, I was inspired by all the president's men. Uh, dreamy. Um, you know, more recently, Spotlight. I mm. actually, after I saw it, I had dreams. Um, I, like I, I, I dreamt about doing a newspaper investigation right. like, in my sleep. Right. Because um, I actually did some investigative reporting too as well okay. in my career. Um, and I really am, uh, really do believe in like the ways that uh, newspapers can shine a spotlight onto mm-hmm. corruption and injustice and how important that is, like, especially now when right. there's all this question of like, what's real, what's fake. Um, so, but I, I don't, I mean, in terms of what inspired me, it was probably reading columnists growing up sure. and the back page of date book or Herb, Herb Kane or Art Hoppy. And then just when the opportunity came up, um, to realize I would be in that very place I grew up reading was, yeah. was just magical. That's so cool. Because you grew up here in yes. the Bay Area and you're here now. Okay. What about the last book that made you laugh? Oh, Ali Wong's Dear Girls. Mm, that just came out. Yes. Yeah. 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 I had a galley copy Amazing. of it. And it's, oh, you know, it's, actually it's another book written as a series of letters. Is it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So to her two daughters okay. and just some of the things were just so – hilarious, like painfully hilarious. Yeah. Just in terms of the, I mean, the bodily humiliations of being a mother and raising kids and just trying to juggle it, um, being a working mom. Um, you know, it was very honest and funny and, you know, it was a sort of book where I would 
like thrust it at my husband and be like, you have to read this paragraph. <laughs> um, I read uh, – so Adrian Tumini is a graphic – um, novelist. And okay. he wrote a book called Shortcomings, which is set in the East Bay. In fact, the cover is the Denny's, which very much looks like the one in Emeryville. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know and, exactly what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> and there's all this funny stuff about race and uh, class and Asian women dating white men. And okay. There's um, even – there's this one part where this Korean uh, lesbian brings her Asian-American friend to church to try and like – be a beard basically mm -hmm. and there's like paid like a few panels of all only in korean um and they're like he looks japanese is he japanese <laughs> like because of that sort of historical enmity right right um i love that adrian tumini didn't like decide like i'm going to translate what this is you can kind of get the gist from the, the reaction in english like what's going on but then i tweeted it um or i i texted it to my friend who can read korean i'm like what 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 are they saying and it was just <laughs> It was just funny. He's like, and then my friend was like, what is this? Like, like how is, how are you, how do you have access to these like conversations of what like a Korean granny would say? But oh it was, God. it was, it was really funny. I love that. That's yeah. so good. Okay. What about a book that brings you joy? The Hundred Year Walk Ooh. by uh, Dawn Anahid McKean. Uh, she's, she's a friend of mine, but um, it's about how her grandfather survived the Armenian genocide, which y there are sort of, sure. <laughs> you know, very dark moments in the book. But as he made his way, you know, escaped, you know, ran for his life, he was then sheltered by this Arab um, sheikh for a number of years. And that's how he sort of um, uh, survived. And just it's... It gives me a lot of joy because first, like sort of the backstory of how she found the notebooks and was able to retrace the steps is incredible. But then just this kind of this hope that in this time with so much um, like clash between religions and culture that they're, they're, you know, and especially in a part of the world that is going through a lot of strife right now, that there there was a way for it, that there could be this, you know, this this way of finding the humanity in each other. That's really nice. Oh, I know what I want to ask you. Since you have young boys, what were some of the favorite books that you share with your sons that you've read with them that they've read? Like, what are the books that they're into? Yeah, well, I um, they loved Goodnight Gorilla, which is okay. sort of set at a zoo, and um, the, I, you know, you say goodbye to all the animals. I mean, it's a very simple plot, but um, I we have footage of one of my sons saying like. Good night, Hanana, because he couldn't say hyena, <laughs> and it just uh, you know they're still cute and cuddly, but they're they're stretching out into being boys, and like right. there is this tangible sense of that going away. Are they into books? Oh, they love books. They do. Yeah, and um, we loved uh, the Mo Willems Elephant and Piggy books mm. as well, just because they're so sort of silly but fun, and um, I also um, there's a book um. Uh, a is for activists by mm. hit by a Bay Area author in Osanto Nagara. I know that book too. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. And so it goes, you know, A to Z, and but it just brought up all these, um, you know, things that maybe they'd already been thinking about, but just like by the time they were three, we were talking about what being transgender means, you know. Right. So they, you know, it, it it was a way to open up the conversation. Yeah, yeah, and That's so um, awesome. And Rad American Girls. Um, and Gutsy Girl are two books um, that I, you know, they're among my go-to gifts uh, for, for you know, tween girls and just inspiring stories about what 
you can do if you put your mind to it. And I mean, the way the world is going, you we have to put our hope in, in, in that generation. Sure do. We sure do. Uh, if you were a high school teacher, what is a book that you might assign in school? Well, I uh, Tommy Orange is there, there. Mm-hmm. I, yes. As you're going through a lot of these books and talking about books that you love, and there's so many Bay Area people. I'm sitting here being like, why don't I live in the Bay exactly. Area anymore? Come, come I'm like, there's so many amazing authors here. Yeah, they're there. Whew. And well, I, I think what was interesting was I got a note back from my um, one of my son's teachers, and it said, "We're learning about Native Americans who used to live here." I'm like, "They're still here. They live here. They're not. It's not a historic. They're not like some ancient artifact. Right. It's they're like not the a- Romans. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like Julius Caesar. Right. Right. And so." I think actually I was very conscious of that early on from maybe even the time in their kindergarten, like what were they learning about pilgrims or the first Thanksgiving or what it meant to be Native American. And I've tried Hmm. very hard, um, even before Tommy's book came out, but just to to like give them a real sense that this is, this culture continued. Right. Yeah. Right. God, that book is so good. Yes. And there's even so Oakland, which I love. Yes. They're like riding on bar. And then there's even like a reference to Moraga, which made me laugh. Like very specific. (laughs) It's like a lot of Easter eggs for Bay Area people. I actually think that he went to middle school with my brother. Oh. My brother was like, oh, some guy I know wrote a book. And I'm like, oh, what book? And he's like, there. This was last year when it came out. It's like (laughs) National Book Award, this and that. And he's like, they're there or something. (laughs) And I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> um, do you remember any books in school that were particularly meaningful to you or books that you liked that we were assigned in school? I mean, it was all the usual dead white authors. Yeah. Um, but did you like them? Yeah. I mean, I think I enjoyed, I mean, I remember like lines from, you know, the mayor of Casterbridge. Like, I don't even know Character that. is fate. <laughs> right. Um, or just even... I remember having to write a paper in high school on like, would you rather live in Brave New World or 1984? Mm. Um, <laughs> Brave New World. I'd rather just be medicated and don't know what's going on <laughs> than have a boot on the neck. Um, and, and The Great Gatsby, which, you know, is, I mean, they're all problematic in their own way, but it's sort of like, you know, those are the books that I remember most. Right. Yeah. Okay. Last one. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? I feel like he would just ask for bullet points. <laughs> so this is the problem with this. I stole this from the New York Times. Yeah. And they do this question. They used to do it when it was Obama. Right. And you'd get all these really great answers. And now with the current president, it the responses that I get are so much on the lines of, can he read? Would he <laughs> right. understand it? So I feel like the spirit of the question is basically he would get – he would. Uh, he would uh, be able to read the words and understand what they were saying. Whether or not it would have any effect on him is totally not the point. But we have to assume that he would be able to read and understand the book. Like, what does he need to hear? Well, right. Or what would you want him to hear? If you had his, you had his ear slash eyes, maybe let him audiobook it. <laughs> but what would be something that you feel like? Uh, well, Dear America by Jose Antonio Vargas, mm. um, who is Filipino. Um, he uh, undocumented, um, came here when he was 11. They just named a school for him oh, really? after him in um, on the peninsula. And oh, wow. he's, I mean, I, I used to work with him and he's, he's, he's just wonderful. And the book is just so – you just begin to understand what it's 
um, sort of like the larger issues, the structural issues, but also just the personal, his own personal story and what, what it's meant to live with the trauma of being undocumented and what that impact has had on his ability to form relationships or to feel at home anywhere. Mm. So That's so good. It's a good tie-in. So next week, we're going to be talking about number one Chinese restaurant by Lillian Lee. We are going to have spoilers next week. So if you haven't read it yet, you still have a week to get to it. Go get Vanessa's book, A River of Stars. But Vanessa, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you guys for listening. And thank you so much to Vanessa for being our guest. I'd also like to say thank you to the folks over at Ballantine Books for sending over a copy of A River of Stars. Make sure that you read Number One Chinese Restaurant by Lillian Lee for next week's episode, where we will be discussing in detail and have spoilers. You can find everything we discussed on today's episode in the link in the show notes. Make sure to get your book recommendation read on air by sending us an email at askingthestacks at gmail.com. For more from The Stacks, please follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you are subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.